Oh yeah. Here we go. All right, we're rolling. We're rolling. So welcome everybody to another episode of Chin Up. Um, thanks to all of you who commented and sent your questions in. Um, we've been talking and we, as we mentioned in the last episode, want to speak to a few of our colleagues and, and friends who have um, either worked in the fitness industry or pursued certain fitness endeavours. And I couldn't think of a better guest. He's one of my best friends. Um, you will recognise him uh, from the, the tele- What did you say? Crime Watch. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, so, so Ratty obviously was a uh, Blue Peter presenter for, how long was it? Six, seven years? Uh, it felt like that at times, but no, it was five and a half. Good, <laughs> okay. Yeah, it did, didn't it? Um, and then now obviously um, working in various roles on TV on, on BBC Sport and doing a lot of tennis uh, over the summer and now uh, snooker as well. So, um, mate, thanks very much. Nice to see you. Mate, my absolute pleasure. This is going to be good fun. Yeah. Uh, so in the middle of a house move at the moment, doing, uh, can we say where you are? Yeah, we are in the Coventry area, which is known as a honeymoon spot where I'm from, because I'm originally from Wolverhampton. <laughs> and um, yeah, moving house uh, when I'm essentially, I've given myself five days to do something which I'm not capable of doing in 55 days. So it's been a little bit stressful, but there are champagne problems. And to be fair, I actually just cannot wait for it to look vaguely resembling of something I can live in. And it's my first place. I'm pretty excited. Nice. Congrats. Thank you, mate. Is it your own place, James? No, no, no. Soon to be moving into, funnily enough, Lloydie's old place. So that, that'll be my, my first uh, home purchase. So, so, so how is the clean going to be? <laughs> Thorough. <laughs> Nuclear. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're buying Rob's, Rob's place, Batty. Wow. Okay, that, that's very cool. Because I've never actually been to Lloydie. He hasn't had the grace to invite me over. But from what I hear, it's very nice. You've never seen what Seven Oaks has to offer. <laughs> yeah. Well, to, to be fair, anything from Wolverhampton is a promotion. Well, yeah. if, you, if you ever want to come down and you want to look at estate agents and chain Italian restaurants, more than welcome. That's the place to... By the way, I have to say, mate, I razored... Uh, this morning after having had five days of I'm gonna hew myself and call it growth but what's beneath your nose and lip is an impressive tash <laughs> thank you very much I appreciate it yeah. I've never seen you Mads, with any facial hair I don't think which is weird because I'm a really hirsute guy normally um, <laughs> I cannot grow hair for love normal on my on my scalp fine anywhere else no <laughs> Um, so, mate, right, let's, let's, um, let's get down to it. JB, you, you've been doing your research. I don't need to because he's my best mate. But I know you've got a few questions and stuff you want to start off with. So do you want to lead us off and we'll see where this goes, shall we? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, obviously, Lordy already touched upon you, uh, obviously, being a Blue Peter presenter for a number of years. We want to kind of keep the topic of chat in the podcast mainly around, like, the physical side of things. So... Why don't you kind of start off by telling us about some of the physical challenges you did on, on Blue Peter? Yeah, I mean, I said, obviously, it felt like six or seven years. The reality was it felt like a fraction of the actual time because it was the genuine pride of my life to be part of that show. I grew up watching it. It was, if you asked me when I was 10 years old, what do I want to be? I'd say I want to be a Blue Peter presenter. And it was in part because of Simon Thomas, who did all the sporting challenges. And so for me, what I kind of learned quite quickly in TV is that 
we, I think, remember things in terms of moments. So you won't say, do you remember that episode of EastEnders or that entire film? You'll say, do you remember that fight scene or do you remember that moment when? And so I kind of wanted to recreate that. And so uh, one of the early challenges I did was I swam across Lake Windermere. And the big challenge for me was the temperature because it was in March, uh, it was for sport relief. And to give you a flavor, so water coming out of a cold tap is around 10 degrees. This was four and a half degrees. Um, it was it was just obscene. Um, I've been fortunate enough to climb the world's tallest man-made climbing wall, which is in Switzerland, uh, called the Diga di Lazzoni, um, which is 165 meters high. And again, all these challenges, I don't have a background in them. It's you go from never having done them to somewhere I'd say varying about a two month commitment and then you're doing it. And it's one chance saloon. Um, then I've skydived with the RAF Falcons. I performed a gymnastics routine. We'll lose, use that term loosely, but at the world's gymnastics championships, not competing for anyone I have to say, uh, for good reason. I've done just a, a real multitude of things, which I'm sure will come to me as we chat. But yeah, that I'm, I have to say I'm pretty proud of, uh, but it's been through opportunity and it's been through kind of hard work. And also I suppose kind of understanding a little bit about my body, a little bit about training, and knowing I'm going to get one chance and almost trying to cover, um, cover the almost reverse engineering problems ahead of time, knowing what issues I'm going to face. So for example, my body doesn't bear weight well. So if I were to do some kind of, and I know throughout this, by the way, Lordy's going to struggle not to chime in with little undermining little gags. I can almost see his shoulders <laughs> going when he's going, oh, hang on, he's, he's opened up the door there. I've got to slam it in his face. <laughs> but it's, yeah, trying to re reverse engineer a problem. So I don't bear weight. So something like um, a Royal Marines thing that I actually did, where you're having to walk for 50 miles, I knew my body skeletally wouldn't enjoy it much. Whereas I can bear weight in a sense I can hang well. So from a tendon standpoint, I'm actually not bad. And I respond very well to sort of tendon stimulation rather than let's say muscle belly work. Um, and then in the gymnastics case, I had to lose a lot of, I had to lose five kilos. Now I came in probably at 70 kilos. And I remember saying to the coach, Rob, I said, I, can't, I don't know if I can just lose five kilos. I can just lose five kilos. I just didn't want to lose five kilos. And the effect it immediately had on my wrists was tangible within the first session post five kilos. You could just feel it. So kind of a little bit of understanding of my body, a little bit of understanding of the problem kind of has led to relative success in what I did for the show. Wow. And it, you, you were saying how none of your kind of background kind of led you into any of these challenges. What, what was your sporting background? So you, you were at university with Lordi, right? Yeah. So, so what, I, what kind of stuff were you doing there? So originally it was karate. That was my thing. Um, and I, I loved the kind of the competition element. I loved um, what they call kumite. So the actual, if you like, sparring, but it's point scoring. No one really gets hurt because even if you did, it'd be one shot and then you'd stop anyway. Um, and then that transitioned for me into skeleton bobsleigh. So I kind of set my sights on becoming a Winter Olympian in 2014 to represent Great Britain. And for those of you who watched Sochi 2014, you'd have seen I wasn't there. So I failed in that, but that was my, that was my goal. And that was kind of because over the first 30 meters of a sprint, I'd always be pretty competitive. It'd be after then that it, people would catch me and invariably overtake me. But the third, my acceleration was always good. And my sort of body type lent itself to skeleton. And how did you get on the path to that? Quite quite an unusual sport to kind of just get, get stuck into, right? Yeah. So I did um, the show Gladiators when it came back to Sky One. 
And through that, met a guy who's now a very good friend of mine called Greg, and he was a GB coach in skeleton. And he basically said, your body type would actually be very good for skeleton. So one is relatively light. So somewhere between, so it, the rules have sort of changed slightly, but back then, somewhere between 70 and 80 kilos would be ideal. Next, if you imagine you're lying head first and you're going to be going through, well, traveling along the ice at say 70, 80 miles an hour, the first point of contact to the air is your shoulders and your head. You can't change the size of your head, but you can change if you like, well, you wouldn't want somebody with thick shoulders and a thick chest because it just makes almost a barrier of resistance to the air. You'd like to be as aerodynamic as possible. And because from a, if you're like a, a chest cavity standpoint, I'm pretty thin, that would help me. Um, and it was, and so he then said, why don't you give it a go? So I went to Bath Uni, tried it, went down onto the push track there, just flipping loved it. And all it was, you run along a rail with a sled, you jump on it, and then the elastic catches you and it pings you back. It's just the, such a brilliant euphoria for something that actually isn't impressive to look at. So you don't even work on the steering, the, the piloting, you're just working on the push. And so then they said, if you want to, you can come abroad and try it out um, in, where was it? It was in Winterberg in Germany. And funnily enough, that trip was with a guy called Adam Bishop. So I mentioned not oh. having a large chest cavity, and <laughs> not having large shoulders. Well, a man who's now one of the world's strongest men, once upon a time, I can say I trained with, and I can possibly say I beat as well, not in strength, but that's now, you know, world's strongest man finalist 2020 and 29, no, not 2019, 2020. So, um, yeah, just, it was a, a real privilege. And that's kind of my, that was my route in and it took off from there. With regards to all of your Blue Peter kind of feats, you mentioned about having to have like a bit of a build up of saying like two, two months long. How, how intense was the training? Did you get kind of... Uh, a, a fair bit of guidance from like your employers for that or is it kind of left a lot to your own devices what they're very good at doing is giving you an expert then the actual exposure you have to that expert varied a lot so for the swimming there was an open water swimming called colin hill who was just just the most i mean you talk about men like he's an unadulterated xy chromosome man and so he said to me before my first immersion as he called it so bear in mind, I've just seen footage of him in the water half an hour before. And I thought, I mean, perfect. This is perfect. It's not even going to be cold. So they had anticipated me swimming for 15 minutes. I managed less than 30 seconds. And that's when they then went, right, we're not going to be able to do what we'd hoped, which is have him swimming in trunks. Now, there are also logistical reasons and reasons of machismo why swimming in might, well, 4.5 degree water and being a bloke doesn't necessarily lend itself to pride on national TV, but it's a, it's also a great excuse. If you're going to have one in that water is a great one. So then we then decided I would do it in a wetsuit. And, and again, I thought wetsuit, perfect. I won't even feel it. So cut to us being in Windermere and it's December. And he says to me, right, Radzi, the cameras are off now. So let's get serious. So first things first, your hands, as soon as you touch the water, it's going to feel like you're dipping your hands in acid. That'll fade, so carry on. The next thing, your head's going to feel as though someone's ripping your scalp off your skull. That'll fade, so push on. Finally, your core body temperature. It's going to naturally want to bring your limbs in closer to kind of maintain that core body temperature. That's going to slow you down. That'll mean you're in the water for longer. Elongate your stroke, 
that will fade anyway, so push on. And I remember him saying to him, I said, Colin, what, what about the good news? Quote <laughs> as a response, the standard you're at, there is no good news. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was exactly what I needed to hear. And had he not said that, I would have sort of been thinking about the camera, the performance and all the rest of it. And instead, all I was thinking is, I don't know if I'm going to get through this. So I had that in my head before I started. And it was only a quarter of a mile swim, which took me, I'm going to say 25 minutes because the, it's so overwhelming. And then you can't see where you're going and you've got the choppiness of the water and all of that going on, not to mention the sort of the buoyancy is different. Um, you're, you're pulling an aid. So in case you were to drown, you'd be visible. Um, and so that was an example of, I think I probably went to Colin maybe about eight times I'd go before the actual final one. And then the rest was on me to kind of get the swimming miles in, in a pool. And we did a couple of indoor pool sessions where we worked on the technical side of things. But in terms of exposure, all that happened was I went to see him. I swam on, let's say a Saturday. And on the Sunday, I was just sideways. I was ill. I was so run down. I was, and I've got asthma as well. And so it would then take me to maybe Friday before I was then human again. And I'd see him again on the Saturday. So they then thought, right, we're just going to have to keep it at that. He can't really do much more than that. And so it's going to be a case of grin and bear it. Then with the gymnastics, that was with a, a wonderful guy from Loughborough actually called Rob Payne, who just everything about him just clicked with how he speaks and how I sort of learn. Um, and that was probably about 20, 20 or so sessions at Loughborough, um, going from thinking I can do a forward roll to then that isn't even close to what we're after. And then him working out based on ability and progression, what was then possible, which is hard for me because you can't say, right, this is what we're, this is what the aim is. It's a case of based on your ability in the last maybe 20% of our time, we'll work on a routine and just, I need to control things. I want to know, you know, you're a powerlifter, James. So I, it isn't going to be right. We'll train for a while and then work out what you're going to squat in the competition. No, no, I've got to bloody know the number here. Otherwise that's going to send me insane. The climbing was, that was every week for, I'd say about, yeah, about 12 weeks. And then we did two sessions outside in Wales because they wanted me to be used to sort of the elements. Um, but it was the actual thing that was hardest about that was weirdly a really specific lactic pump in your forearms. And when you get it, you actually can't carry, you, you have no, I'd say your grip goes from natural fatigue, let's say 88% down to probably probably 20%, but you feel as though you have 1% and you're having to manage that. So you learn to even between moves. So if you go from trying to describe this for people who can't see, if you've got a crimp, meaning you can get your fingers behind the, the actual grip, rather than going from one grip with your right hand, then whilst squeezing that, grabbing with your left hand, whilst squeezing with your left hand, transitioning straight up with your hand to the next one, you learn to flick your fingers down because just that, um, I guess that almost contraction meets total relaxation of the muscle gave it just a chance for a tiny bit of lactic to sort of eviscerate. And the coach Ian used to call it putting fuel in the tank. So it just stops that final ebb of fuel draining away. So it just gives you a tiny bit more to work with. And again, trying to use your legs a lot more than your hands. And if you don't respect the wall, the harder it becomes, the faster you will just fatigue. 
And so it really did vary from challenge to challenge. So how long were you on the wall for? How long were you climbing for? So the actual challenge was, I was on the wall for three hours. Um, and, and so I was doing what's called lead climbing. And then I was, if you like, um, following. So the significant part of lead climbing means you have to put the rope into the wall yourself. Now, if you go to an indoor climbing wall and you're lead climbing, it will probably be one meter, if you like, between every carabiner that's available to clip your rope into. So in this wall, you have to clip your carabiner into the wall and then clip your rope into the carabiner, which means you have to be in a very solid three position base to be able to achieve that. But then you're lifting a rope, which is 50 meters long. No, it's 100 meters long the rope. So it's a 100 meter long rope. No apologies, five pitches. Yeah, about, yeah, it's about somewhere between 50 and 100 meters long a rope, which is heavy. And so if you're slightly in a precarious balance situation, which you are when you're my standard, to try and lift a rope and then in some cases reach out with it, as did happen, if I missed the rope going into the carabiner, I'm falling off the wall, no two ways about it. And then for three of the five pitches, so three of the, let's say, 30 meter um, lengths, I was leading, but the last two were inverted. So it was um, an overhang. So again, somebody that's a decent climber would have found the actual each individual pitch very straightforward. The issue is fatigue, next thing, my inexperience, the next thing, the amount of exposure you've got on the wall, and then finally being 100 metres up and not even having a rope in front of your eyes. And what actually happened, this bit didn't make it to air, but the, the last three clips that would go into the wall, I was that knackered, I didn't even see them. So I was racing up the final bit and I didn't clip at all, which would have meant because it was, um, I would have basically fallen the best part of a length of a swimming pool before I would have been at the next rope carabiner clip-in point because you then go past it by, so if you fall to the point at which you clip the rope in, you fall that same distance again before the rope's going to catch you. So I would have fallen the best part of a swimming pool, which would have had two issues. One, pain. Two, if I wanted to complete it, I'd have to go again from that distance. Um, and it was totally safe. I had this amazing guy who was next to me, uh, or was in the vicinity. And he said afterwards, he said, just so you know, I know you missed those last three clips. He said, but it's my job not to tell you to clip. It's my job to assess safety. And he said, at that point, had you tried to clip, you would have been more at risk of falling than not clipping. He said, I then had to weigh up the fact of the more you don't clip, the more dangerous that fall will be. He said, but you were so close to the top. He said, and I could see you were moving quickly, not through desire, but through necessity. He went, I didn't need to tell you that. You didn't need to tell me that. He said, that was apparent. He went, so I was making an evolving decision based on what I was seeing. He said, I just don't want you to ever go back and think, Hang on, I didn't even clip in. Was anyone even watching it? I was absolutely watching everything that you did. Um, and so again, that was not only managing performance, but also managing fear, adrenaline, and then technical as well. Yeah, that's insane. The 
you don't actually get a great deal of time to prepare them, really. Like, it, it sounds quite intensive, but certainly not very extensive. Like, not a took two months to kind of get to a, what sounds like a really good standard. Not yeah. long at all. I'd say competent was the word I became. And you also, you learn very quickly how to learn. And you learn almost what you need to know, what you don't need to know when you're learning any sport. And um, in fact, when I did, so, um, um, what's it called? Water skiing. So I did water skiing, but mono ski. So you're on one ski. And very quickly, I learned in that not to overthink. And I learned that the variation was too much for me. So based on the conditions on a given day, air temperature, water temperature, how fast the boat was going, uh, they're just two of them. That, that affected so many things that all I could eventually do is just rely on what I've been taught. So I'll just rely on the fact that we naturally know how to balance. As long as I don't overcorrect, I will stay up. It's if I start trying to consciously change things, that's when issues sort of arise. Um, and then you learn, you're trying to balance that with telling a story. So you want to have, I'm struggling, but it's fun, to then I'm making a progression. And I'm happy to sort of act the fool on camera. But at some point there has to be a discernible progression. Otherwise it's just a non-story. And, but you learn very quickly that process of learning. I think academic learning is one thing, but almost learning to adapt to a situation, whether it's even just learning that I can't control the time I will do it at. And that in my head isn't great because I need to know on this date, at this time, I'll be doing this thing. But instead it was on a vague date at a roughly known time, this may or may not happen. And I'd begun to be almost, almost relish that challenge of thinking actually i'm going to take the control away and i'm going to learn to control how i respond to that lack of control was it all of this stuff all part of um blue peter or yeah so that's all been blue peter i mean i've been able to take it to other things i did a um, filming for this morning where um i did wake surfing for example uh there and they, and again you just learn very i mean so what invariably happens with tv is you'll have a producer we'll see a professional and we'll say, I mean, if fancy is 15 minutes, I mean, I imagine it'll be just slightly below world class, surely. <laughs> and it's, yeah, okay. Um, so if we just go back to the real world just for a second, what do you want me to do? Because this is implausible. Or it's going to be, so Randy, what would be great? And this did actually happen. What would be great is if, if you're wakeboarding, because it's the same as wake surfing, obviously, um, if you stand on the edge of the water, yeah, and then as the rope pulls you into the water, if you want to say something to the camera, then as it pulls you from the jetty into the water, you then carry on that piece of camera. And I went, yeah, and what I'll do is I'll actually do a back somersault midair, if you fancy. <laughs> um, but then what actually happened, semi-annoyingly, was I was able to do what they were asking. And that's... It was then because my kind of ego kicks in and goes, but actually, can I do it? Because I know when I walk away from this, I'll think, could I actually have done that? And I, it was a measured thing of where worst case scenario is really, I just eat hard. Best case scenario is I land it. And so what I did then say is, right, I, I kind of, without boring you the technicality, I made it so that I could do the first bit on the jetty without having to worry about getting into the water and then was pulled into the water and did the second part of what they're after. But, and I said, we're doing this once because as I'm aware, 
you throw the dice more than a couple of times, you are going to roll injury. Yeah. And, um, and I didn't want that to happen. But I also, in fact, another one was um, I learned to dive. Um, in fact, mate, I don't know if you relate to this. Maybe you are not like me. You're not a vain, narcissistic man. But when you get told, so Razzie, you're doing a film in three days' time. Yeah, go on, what's it? Diving. Amazing. I want to scuba dive. I've always wanted to learn to scuba dive. No, it's, it's the high diving. Oh, no. Uh, oh, no. I have, I've had 10 weeks of not even one gym a week. I'm in woeful nick. I'm now going to be in a pair of trunks. <laughs> Television. Oh, no. Hang on. How long? Three weeks. No, three days. Ah, oh, I can't even, there's no point even doing anything, is there? So turned up in awful nick. Had to get over that immediately. And then from a 10 meter board, eventually learned to somersault off it. But that was, again, you kind of learn, well, as was the case. So I said to the guy who instructed me, well, in fact, quick story about that. So the guy's called Andy Marshall, great bloke, took Tom Daly from novice to world-class. And... Um, he was almost military in how he'd do everything. So he'd say, you'd be on the edge of the board, toes on the edge, and so whatever it is you're doing, okay, Radzi, enter the water in three, two, one, leave. And so you then knew that on the one, you're prepping, on the L of leave, I'm going. So then what happened was he had a dentist appointment after three hours, and the person who's taking over obviously knows that I'm awful. So the guy takes over, stands next to me and says, okay, Radzi, okay then, in your own time, three. And at this point, because I'm waiting for the one, I've prepped. And then I don't know, A, that his methodology is to do three and that's your set and you carry on the count in your head. He doesn't know that I'm woeful. So what then happens is he goes three and I'm looking forward I'm pretending to set on the waiting for his one. It doesn't happen. And as I'm 45 degrees now to gravity, I'm looking back at him, realizing that I'm midair and I entered like an accordion. And then basically it took any bottle that I had threw it out of the window and then meant that as we then tried to transition to the 10 meter board, I went, not going to happen. So then we thought, right, what if I do a back somersault off it? So I just fall backwards. And that works. So I didn't have to see the water. So I'd almost just commit to a movement. But again, that was almost a learning process of learning how I learn. And I learned it the hard way by eating water hard. Surely you, surely as well, you have to slow your rotation the higher you go up. Yeah. It, it, so when you actually learn to do it off the side of the pool initially, so you almost the water is level with the pool because they just want you to work on can you physically perform the rotation? And then exactly that. But the problem is, is the way we learn invariably trial and error. Yeah. Trial I'm fine with. Error hurts. Of course, yeah. And again, when you eat, you eat so hard from 10 meters. And they, they had, they said, so Andy said, what I need you to be able to do is we're going to do this 10 times. You're going to have 10 clean entries which was feet first, by the way, from seven and a half meters. He said, because it's only then that you'll have any idea of where you're at. He said, but I also need you to be able to do three in a row, not just we do 40 of them and you, let, you get 10. He said, because that will show competency. He said, I'm not after a perfect entry. I'm just after you showing that you're safe to do it. 
but the, the other issue is, is that to your point, Lloydie, about because you're having to slow, what do you want to do the more scared you are? Commit more. And so you're having to almost uncommit. But if you totally uncommit, so if you, so if you imagine you're on a board and I'm sat on the board with my spine, if you like, to the air, my coccyx is almost midair. That's how sort of close to the edge you are. As you fall back off the board, if you did nothing, you would probably give, I reckon, maybe uh, one and a half rotations. If you come out of your your coiled position too early, you'll just face plant the water. And there's nowhere to go when you under rotate, nowhere whatsoever. What you will do is you'll be in a diving position. So there's so much going on. And I'm acutely aware of the fact that this isn't also one of those where, oh, it will just hurt a bit. Isn't This actually has and will cause internal bleeding. <laughs> Because you hit so hard and decelerate so quickly, you just get a wave that goes through your stomach. Fortunately, I only had that in my glutes. And when I, when I actually took my trunks off in the shower, there, there was visible bruising for all to see. It was just hit, 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 hit. But again, at the same time, I want to have that proprioception. I want to learn. I want to challenge myself. It's something I'm not particularly good at. I've never done it before. And so it's a challenge. We've got a finite time, namely 5 p.m. before the, the other guys. Started. And then the other bit of embarrassment was there were also some GB divers there as well. <laughs> and so they're just looking at this bloke who just is, what are you doing, mate? Um, so there was the ego as well as the pride, as well as the incompetency. Man, how, how do you deal with that sort of, sort of pressure? Did you have to perform any of these kind of things live? Um, well, so things like the climb were essentially as live in that I get one crack at it. Sure. Um, the water skiing was actually for an official competition. So officially I competed in the British water skiing championships. Um, and so that was live in the sense that you get one go. Well, actually, strictly speaking, you get two goes because they choose the way it works is you have a certain distance to get all your maneuvers in and in my case, it was, I think you had 400 meters and I was traveling for 200 meters on each run. Um, but you get one chance. And actually, I think I'm quite obsessed with being present. And when I skydive with the RAF Falcons is when they open a door and you can see land and you can see the ground and it's, it's indecipherable from from people, you can't see people, you can see fields and whatever else. And you've got to jump out of a plane at 13,000 feet. And there's been no, I'm connected to somebody. It's from, I've done it on the ground and I'm now solo skydiving. I don't give a monkeys whether your girlfriend has had an argument with you last night. I don't give a monkeys if you've got the worst diarrhea known to man and your stomach is in a knot, you will not be aware of any of it. But then you hear your internal monologue and that's such an honest, it's an honest um, stream of consciousness that happens because you actually, my actual monologue that I kept hearing was don't bottle it. Those were actually the words, don't bottle it. And that came from my hero on Blue Peter, Simon Thomas, who did the same thing at the same place with the same group of people with the Falcons about 20 years prior. And unfortunately he had a, a near miss essentially and 
he then couldn't get back in the play. He couldn't commit himself to doing it. And so I knew that bottling it was a real thing. When I say bottling it, that sounds like a pejorative term. It's not meant to be, but just the notion of not having the, the tools to be able to deal with the situation. It's too overwhelming. And, and when you actually jump out of a plane, you have the free fall initially, and then you open your canopy. And under the canopy, it's just this, it's a beautiful, majestic euphoria that's, that's somewhere between sort of ecstasy and dream state and this, this out-of-body experience that's so wonderful. It's, 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 everything slows down. You see birds flying underneath you. It's this real peace. But that's just come as a, as a result of the most extreme adrenaline coursing out of my tear ducts seconds before. And so learning to manage that becomes a thing. Um, what will help is having 10 RAF Falcons in the plane who jump out before you, who are intentionally farting to make you laugh and are poking each other in the ass to make each other laugh whilst sending text messages because they are so unbelievably desensitized to this and they've done thousands of jumps. So to them, the preparation has already been done on the ground. All the safety measures have been taken care of. And I, in terms of people I look up to, in terms of systems, nothing compares to the military. I've learned about training methodologies because of them. And I wish certain sports would adopt that, namely athletics the amount of people that you see just going through motions for the sake of going through motions. You know, you think about somebody in the powerlifting world like Kurt Kowalski, and whether he's lifting, he's got 60 kilos on the bar. He has the same three-step setup as whether he's hitting a thousand pound for a double. And that to me is professionalism, it's military, it's precision engineering, and it's what yields a result. And I've, I'm annoyed because I don't have the talent to be able to kind of display it on a, in a world-class way, but I've kind of learned it objectively. So for anyone that will listen, I'll happily tell them. Yeah, it's funny. We were having the same conversation the other day, weren't we, Lloydie, about, you know, doing various challenges. And even though, you know, you might not be top of your class in terms of whether it's running, powerlifting, whatever, the mental prep and everything's still, still key. Yeah. Just yeah, to kind of set your own standard. And, you know, I actually, I genuinely admire you. And when Lloydie sort of talks about what you've got in store for yourself and, you know, you're, you're metronomic with your goals and your preparation and no stones left unturned, sleep, nutrition, training, attitude to training, warm up, cool down. It's awesome. And I think that some of the people I've, I've been lucky enough to work in sports broadcasts and speak to some of the world's best in their fields but people I respect the most are people that not necessarily are the best, but people who get the best out of themselves, even if that means that they are not the best, because that's proper commitment. And that is, you know, whether it's, whether it's a boxer who just gives as much out of the ring as he does in the, in the rings easy. It's natural. It's an instinct. It's a fighter's instinct. You'll carry on fighting, but having everything you can to mean that you've maximized every opportunity to win from a, a neurological standpoint, a physiological standpoint. And, you know, with what you do, knowing you have a model you're sticking to, knowing you've hit your numbers, hit your reps, and they've been good reps. You haven't cheated on any of the reps. You haven't been fast and eccentric in some to, to artificially get that number. It means that when you finally hit your number, you hit your 1RM or whatever it might be that you go for. That, to me, is just 
such a wonderful achievement and how many more things would be achieved in life if we took that attitude to every single well for a start moving house i'd have been a lot more efficient safe to say but um but yeah how much better we'd be in so many aspects yeah yeah the, the domains can definitely be kind of transferred across can't they yeah the transferability absolutely yeah and Matt, you know you look someone like Bernard Hopkins who went on in the box and going at the top level to, to when he was 49 50 I know you work you look, work a lot with Michael Johnson all meticulous individuals and JB I know you wouldn't necessarily consider yourself a world-class athlete but I certainly think definitely terms, not in terms of world-class preparation the way you respect the process I think you are because actually to, to do what you do every day it's the meticulous and it's the repetitiveness and actually it's quite it's quite a dull process a lot of the time it's not something that you would describe to someone in really exciting terms you go this is what i'm doing to get to the this end goal a lot of it is rinse repeat but it's rinse repeating well and with good execution and as you said rads not just going through the motions you know going going through this kind of lazy warm-up so you just think i've just got to do my high knees so i'm just going to do my high knee it's actually being mentally switched on even through the, the easy stuff where where you can actually get away with you know letting your technique lapse you don't see people at the top level doing that and i think respecting that process every day yeah it, it may be a little bit dull but that's when you fast forward and you look at the accumulation of this this person's been doing this for 10 years and person b has also been training for 10 years but they've maybe just slacked on a few of the details the cumulative effect of that could actually be the difference between someone being uh, really, really good, world-class, and then an Olympic champion. Well, I, so on a sort of minor level, I can personally attest to the effect of that. So one was I do the gymnastics and I did, in terms of full all-out uh, rehearsals, I did 16 of them. And in my final routine, of which I practiced 16 times all-out, the tumble, I had three tumbles and I hit all three tumbles only on the final one in front of the crowd. And that was because Rob, the coach, said to me, you need to be able to perform your manoeuvres imperfectly because your setup, unlike yourself with powerlifting, will not be perfect. He said, so we need you to be able to commit to a movement that feels so alien that you're just going to deal with it and trust that you'll deal with it. And I remember seeing my final front somersault. I'm at such an, a, a sort of strange angle to the floor when I take off. And it was, I don't even know why that happened, but I came round and landed. And I remember looking at the floor and what would normally happen when I was training, funnily enough, in Loughborough, is I'd see my feet land and then my feet would go out in front of me because I haven't been able to get enough rotation in order for me to stick the landing. Or, as did happen for the three rehearsals I did beforehand, I was over-rotating because the floor had changed. For the first time ever in the World Champs, we were using this springier floor, which had less grip which were the two things I didn't need, less grip and more spring. As in, just give me, give me the dampest of scrapyard springs, please. And I've got a chance of being able to do this. Um, and all Rob said to me was in the rehearsal, mate, I don't care if you over-rotate and fall over. He went, but you could have under-rotated before you began. He went, a forward roll is an under-rotated front somersault. 
But the only reason I stuck it was because of that imperfect preparation, which meant that every single rep we did of every single thing counted. And when you think about the, I go back to, um, I was a, a mascot called Spike the Lion, and it meant that I was privy to being at the Diamond League or the Golden League as it was then. I got to sit in the call room of all world-class athletes at the call room is where before you see the guys out on the track as they walk to the blocks or to wherever they might be jumping or throwing, they gather in an area where they're officially registered. That's the call room. Before the call room is the warm-up area. And they've got to be in the call room X number of minutes beforehand to check their numbers, to check that the logos aren't too big, blah, blah, blah. I remember hearing a noise behind me and it was a, it was a drum beat. It was a guy, weirdly, had brought some drums with him. And he was going, boop, 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 boop on a snare and it was a tightened snare because I used to play the drum so I knew what it sounded like. I've turned around and it's Tyson Gay doing his high knee drills. The noise that came off that track was unreal. It wasn't even Mondo track. And the fact that he's torn his Achilles many times is of no surprise because the forces that are going through there would boggle Newton. It was unbelievable. But that's a guy who's every, from the simplest of movements, He's, take, he's getting everything out of every single rep of every single warm-up, then every single rep that you then count. What have you done today? Three 300s. No, you haven't done three 300s. You've done a warm-up which lasted for the best part of an hour. And how, how close to maximal was that? And I think a surgeon wouldn't just turn up to the surgery table or the operating theatre and just casually open somebody up. There's a process that you, and it starts, I imagine, from the moment you wash your hands or from the moment you sit down with the patient and explain to them what's going to happen. Or dare I say, it starts when they wake up because they're not going to be hungover. They're going to have this probably a very similar breakfast or a breakfast that will sustain them to the point that they have lunch and they don't arrive to work stressed. They probably don't speak to somebody on the phone on the way to work because they're setting their mental state. And the same if you're going into battle in the in the military everything is thought through a long time before you're actually under fire as it were and it's it's a real side of of training that i think you only see in seldom sports i think funnily enough diving is actually one of them um i actually think powerlifting is probably the most pertinent because it's such a closed action and there's such little the reality is mate if you've got naturally stronger triceps pecs and that's probably about it for let's say bench which you do the reality is you're always going to be able to bench heavier than me what can i do to really come back at you very little so therefore that's why the marginal gains are almost exponentially exposed more in something like powerlifting because it's such a small movement that every inch literally counts but what about in a skill game what about in darts what about in snooker what about in all these other areas I think there's an enormous opportunity that very few people actually take advantage of. I mean, go, going back to um, what you were saying earlier, you you just started talking about how you were beginning to work in athletics. Yeah. What um, what kind of challenges did you find making that transition from going from kind of kids TV over to more kind of like conventional roles? What what kind of stuff were you were you perhaps struggling with? What were your experiences? So where um it's a really fair point actually mate is um is that t kids tv is much more about that everything's happy and you find a way to make everything positive so even if as i did um i was privileged enough 
to do what we called the walk that changed the world. So the Martin Luther King March from Selma to Montgomery, I, I walked it in exactly the same time as he did um, and got to meet some just humbling people. But that, even though it was unbelievably tumultuous in its, in its rhetoric, in its narrative, what you're saying is that's what used to happen. And now we don't accept that and how far we've come that we haven't got there, yet, but that's how far, so that's, if you like, the, the axiom of the telling of the story, because leaving it on sadness and desperation, that's not going to be helpful to young people. So instead it's, we're going to tell you how bad it was, but we're also going to talk to you about an opportunity to improve and how can you make a contribution to that? And there's an element of um, parallel with kids to sport because it's a lot more straight, it's a lot more journalistic. And I'd say specifically in British broadcast, we've, we're as straight as a butcher's knife in how we deliver sports. Now, if I had my way, it'd be a lot more animated because I think that part of the reason why, you know, me and my mate, actually Rich from Loughborough used to watch the snooker because Rob Walker, who I'm now delighted to say is a friend of mine, used to say, let's get the boys on the bays before his announcements. And every time we go, way. And that's just a tiny bit of charisma and personality in snooker. And so for me, it's still sort of an ongoing dilemma because you want to always be competent. You want to be accurate. Uh, you want to be fair. You don't want to lie to an audience. You don't want to say something's great when it's clearly not. But I also think that if I had my way, there'd be a lot more passion. And I think actually, again, going back to, going back to powerlifting or especially bodybuilding, you know, we've got Mr. Olympia um, going to be in December this year that is spoken that's commentated like two blokes in a pub talking about how they think they would change the design of their beer mat it's just and there's there's phil heath great quad sweep um he's really come up since the what's that let's at least get excited about the visuals that we're seeing because i really like sorry to interrupt you Ad. i, I love that they, they accidentally hired Danny Wallace for, uh, for the Giants Live and Strongman stuff uh, uh, a couple of years ago. I, I guess thinking he was, uh, uh, I think it's a social commentator, and they, I think they thought that was sports commentator. He turned out to be one of the best things that I think has happened to the brand because you've got this guy who doesn't need to really know the intricacies and the ins and outs. He talks for the everyman. And I, I, I just remember like, Iron Bibby walked on the stage. This guy, for anyone who hasn't seen it, was he the best part of 180, 190 kilos, maybe more? And natural, by the way. I want to add that in there. I wouldn't, you know, I'm not, I won't get into, let's say, PEDs necessarily, but I can 100% attest to the fact that Czech Ahmed Al Hassan Sanu, aka Iron Bibi, is as clean as a whistle. Yeah, and he's a big, he's a big, big boy. And I just remember him walking on the stage and, and Danny Wallace talking about his mum, and he just went, difficult birth. And I thought, <laughs> and you think, and you think you're never going to hear that on the BBC, but no one at home gonna, is going to hear that and not laugh and not smile. And it adds to the, the, the value that he brings to, to those shows. You've obviously got Brycey or whoever else is alongside him commentating and, and being the expert, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think we're, we're slowly turning the tide, but of course you're working predominantly for a lot of the more traditional institutions, so the BBC or whether it's ITV or whoever, and, and actually they have such long-held traditions and ways of doing things. 
that when you just want to casually shake something up a bit, in your head, it's not a big thing, but to them, it's actually, you need to stay in your lane here. So I, I guess, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I hope that, you know, things change in the next sort of 10, 15 years, certainly with your career. But I do think you actually, you, you do bring your personality where you can into the broadcast and into the things that you do. Yeah, there's, there's a fine line because my one thing about Strongman is I love Strongman. I flipping love it. But the only thing is when you say Strongman, it's a little bit like when you say Keith Chegwin. You go, do you remember Keith Chegwin? Oh, Keith Chegwin, eh? Was if I what are you doing? Watching, working on the strong, the strong man. Oh, my Jeff Capes. Oh, he was strong, wasn't he? Or you know, blimey, Marius Pujanovsky. Oh, he's a beast, wasn't? He? It's almost this nostalgia, mm. and I think for it to transition um, and kind of transcend the the humour and I guess the fun, entertainment, and kookiness there needs to be an element of veracity in it. There needs to be something which we can hang our hats on. So whether it's that, um, so I've actually had this discussion with some of the actual bosses of, um, from IMG, who are very open to ideas is why I do it. So for example, can we see more statistics? Mm. So rather than just having, these guys are now gonna, let's say, uh, pull 340 off the floor, um, and it's going to be axle bar deadlift off a wheel. So what you could say is over the last four years, the axle bar has fluctuated in its weight from 330 to 370, but no one has ever lifted more than 11 reps on it. So at least therefore going into it, you've got a wow. Okay. So anything close to double figures is really impressive. You know, perhaps we could say going into it, this event will lend itself to anybody, first of all, with a big grip, because you're unable to hook grip the bar, because it's an axle, unless you're Mark Felix, you can hook grip a bloody yeah. basketball. Yeah. Um, and then we could talk about perhaps strength endurance, perhaps we could talk about the point at which you're pulling a bar, how does it compare to silver dollar, how does it compare to traditional deadlift, how does it compare to being block pulls, whatever. But point being, let's add a little bit of sports science to this, rather than, here we go, it's the big lads. We know it's the big lads. We can see it's the big lads. What's going to make me watch tomorrow's heat when it's the same events as today's heat before the final? And what's going to make me watch every single event if the events are going to be quite similar to me to add another dimension would be the same way you deal with any sport. Add numbers and add something that I can go, go home and, or go to school or go to uni, go to work and say, blimey, did you see X? he almost got the record or blimey. The guy was saying that hasn't been done in four years or whatever, but yeah, but it's a final. I love, I love entertainment. That's why I love American sports broadcast, but yeah, I would love to, it to be kind of balanced with just a little bit of um, an extra dimension of the numbers. I, it's interesting. I was um, reading on the, uh, the barbell medicine forum the other day. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Yes. The, one of the um, topics that came up was someone asked, oh, do you ever think Strongman will make it into the Olympics? I just thought, oh, if it does, what a shame. I think it would, it would just completely go against everything that you just said there. I think it would completely stiffen it up. Um, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't quite be the way that's uh, kind of conducive for the future of the sport. 
Yeah, and to your point is that the Olympics have certain prerequisites. So karate, when I competed in it, it was before the Olympic um, structure and format. So the, the numbers have become incredibly important. So you'd have, certainly when I used to compete, you had three points. And again, ha, sorry, either 1.2 points or three points, depending on your move. Whereas now it's 1.2 points, five points. So it basically lends itself to throwing high risk moves because it's high reward. And the worst that's going to happen, the reality is you're going to get one point. It'll be a one point counter. So if I throw five times a spinning roundhouse back hit and land and the guy responds four times with a counter, well, I'm up because it's that'll be five points to four. And that's in the ridiculous scenario of five attempts that he happens to counter and I happen to miss. So it changes the whole ethos of certain things. And I think sometimes you have to be careful of what you wish for. Even with um, the guy who's in charge of OCR, um, obstacle course racing, there's an element of that, which is a 100 meter ninja course really. And they're trying to get that into the Olympics. The problem is it's become 10 events over the 100 meters, uniform, homogenized, has to be the same because that's a prerequisite yeah. the Olympics. Of course, you'd have to standardize everything, wouldn't you? Standardize, absolutely. I guess they could do strongman competitions outside that were more flexible and, and a little bit more entertainment and crowd-friendly as the Giants lifestyle is. But once you once you enter something into Olympic competition, you, you have to standardize those events and, and they have to be standardized forever. And that's the... so. so you'd have to have a, a decent spread. It would take a while to to work out what those events were going to be. Um, it, it, I mean, I personally think it would work from the standpoint of it's pre-recorded every year and then it gets put out near to Christmas. And I think the, the frustration that the fans have and the uh, criticism that I often see levied is that this is an event that's happened now. We want to see it as it's happening because sport is meant to be viewed live. You wouldn't have the World Cup final in football pre-recorded and go, oh, it's fine. We'll just find out the winner in five weeks' time at Christmas. And I get the reason why, because each event takes a very short amount of time. There's lots of recovery required. But a format like the Olympic Games every four years, you, you could actually structure that over the course of you know a, a couple of weeks, giving the guys the rest that they need, setting up individual events, because... It's no less exciting to watch than the shot put or the discus or the javelin or the long jump or the high jump or the pole vault where it's one effort, one endeavour, there's your result and then we move on. It gives them time to reset. You'd obviously have big crowds and audiences. It would work from a broadcast standpoint. It's just whether, as you say, they want to standardise a set of disciplines and say, this is now the Olympic format. Because I don't think any strongmen, if you ask them, would say they wouldn't go to the Olympic Games if there was an Olympic format and the chance to be the champion because they want to be the best in the world. And it's one of very few sports where you consider these uh, these guys to be the best at, at what they do, yet there's no opportunity to be an Olympic champion. What would be interesting, <clears throat> and I'll sort of choose my words slightly carefully here and allow people to read between the lines, one nature of a, of kind of attaching yourself to the Olympics and becoming an Olympic sport. <laughs> I can see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, precisely. So, so therefore, what you'd possibly have, is, if you like, old school strongman that we know and love and watch on TV, and, and possibly um, a, a more, um, let's say, 
a leaner strongman that perhaps you may have smaller individuals that it might be attracted to. Um, and I think that's been part of the issue around powerlifting becoming an Olympic sport because for a number of years now, you know, again, going back to Kirk Kowalski, one of the reasons he stayed in the sport was he was told that it was going to become an Olympic sport. And, you know, again, becoming, being a world champion and an Olympic champion, it's weird because in some cases being a world champion can be harder, but an Olympic, I mean, in climbing, for example, they, they've actually combined all three disciplines of bouldering, lead climbing, and what's the other one? speed climbing into one total and what one of the climbers described to me it as being they went can you imagine asking Usain Bolt to basically do a bit of gymnastics and a bit of swimming you go he won't do very well the problem of that is then what you're doing is going it's the person who's the least weak least weak in most of the three rather than the most best if that makes sense which is what is all about right yeah. Um, and so multi-events, great. But even in, you know, let's take Olympic lifting, there's no snatch gold, clean and jerk gold, and then total gold. It's just total gold. It's whereas worlds, you have the, the person who's got the best snatch will invariably not be the person who wins overall because a be- the best snatch is going to win by, if it's super heavy, is going to win by two kilos. The best clean and jerk is going to win by could be seven and a half kilos. <clears throat> So you can have a you can have a great cleaning jerk, uh, relatively speaking, an average snatch and win, and so that again it enters it brings up. I mean, to be fair, I'd love to hear what the strong men's viewpoint would be about it because there are pros, there are cons. But like you kind of say, James, I think it would miss something about it. Um, Rad, we're just touching upon the hour mark there, mate. Um, I think it'd be really useful to know for for us, everyone who's watching or listening. You've, you've clearly got like a great outlook on things. Lovely guy. I think um, we'd really appreciate, appreciate your insight. Um, obviously, it's been a tough year for, for the vast majority of us. Um, what's been your biggest challenge over these past few months and how did you overcome it? Um, biggest challenge? Um, so it's been a lot. I've been in a lot of personal flux. So I ended a very long term relationship. Um, I decided to buy my own place. Um, and so I moved back to Wolverhampton and kind of was in lockdown with my mum. I suppose one, one of the challenges would have been the idea of, in fact, I'll tell you what it was. It's I seldom take stock of a position that I'm in. So my dad passed away a few years ago and it's been that that made me one time stand next to Mo Farah and Denise Lewis and Colin Jackson on air and think my dad would have flipping loved this. He'd have loved that his son is stood here. I was lucky enough to interview Elliot Kipchoge after he ran the first sub to our marathon and I cried and I was stood next to a guy called Wilson Kipkeeter when he did it, the 800 metre world, uh, indoor world record holder. It should really be the 800 metre outdoor world record holder but he got malaria. And I thought my dad wouldn't bloody believe this. He would not believe that I'm telling Wilson Kipkeeter that me and my dad watched him get the world record. We wouldn't believe it. And so, but outside of that, I don't really, um, I suppose I don't like to be too reflective or appreciative, I guess, in a moment, because I think deep down, 
I worry that that moment can be taken away or that there won't be another moment like it. So instead I bulletproof myself like a Marcus Aurelius or a Seneca stoicism. And that's fine. That does work. But what happens when there aren't any more moments? What do you do with that? And I think what I've learned to, to kind of experience and focus on is gratitude. Um, and in a time when, you know, I can be very busy normally with work, very busy. Um, you sort of here, there, on to the next one. Actually, it's made me just think, you know, I'm so grateful to be able to hold a microphone for a living and speak words into a microphone. My granddad lost his leg in the Second World War and worked in a factory all of his life. My mum, you know, um, has worked for the NHS all of her life, same as my dad. But, you know, we used to have pigs trotters at the end of many months growing up. We didn't have a lot of money. And so what it's really allowed me to, so the, the challenge has been finding finding the growth especially when professionally there hasn't been much in the same way i've been very lucky uh but there hasn't been the growth perhaps that i'm maybe used to or the speed of existence but what it's made me realize is the flowers i've noticed the flowers more along the way and rather than looking at my phone and looking at the map and how am i going to get there and oh my gosh i'm late and i need to be there and i want to be i want to do this job and i want to do it well and i want to do this justice now it's actually taking stock, taking a moment, taking a breath and thinking what a privilege it is to speak to Ken Doherty, the 1997 World Snooker Champion. What a great bloke he is and how much I'm loving playing table tennis with him. You know, and actually that for me has been quite a transformative experience. And do I think it outweighs the cost? No. But again, that in of itself is quite a big thing for me. And I've, I've had therapy over my dad passing and sort of how that's affected me. And, you know, I wouldn't have spoken about this a year ago. I just wouldn't have done it. And part of the reason why I thought, as you asked that question, I thought, am I going to mention my dad? Because I, I don't like virtue signaling. I don't like sort of, you know, the, the grief Olympics that people like to go on. Um, a lot of people talk about mental health issues, which is fantastic. My mum has worked in mental health for 45 years. I'm aware of it and I'm aware of its really devastating effect but it's important much like racism that we don't misuse the term and if we say depression that's what we mean because people suffer that and let's not do them a disservice or the term a disservice but so i didn't want to, i thought well, am i going to mention my dad and obviously lloyd, lloyd knows all about that and has been instrumental in me kind of getting to this point but actually yeah i'm going to mention it and that's been part of if you like this kind of release that i've now kind of gone through of trying to liberate myself from certain shackles and whether that be appreciating a moment, feeling gratitude, give myself credit for things and just being grateful that I'm in a house and it's my house. And this is what a wonderful privilege that is that not everyone gets to experience. And so a very long rambling answer, mixing the effect with the cause, but I guess it's been trying to find the positive and the growth and the result has been where I'm at now, which is actually quite a good place. Yeah. Awesome, mate. Yeah, I mean, thanks for sharing. Yeah, well said. Uh, you know, your process. I think you know we've talked all about what you've done in terms of physical endeavours, but you know the process alongside that of negotiating what is a very complicated world of, of broadcast, TV, and, and all the sort of machinations of fame and everything else you've gone through it hasn't always been like the last few years. There's been a lot of strife, a lot of hard work, and I think the reason you know we talked about process in the last hour. The reason you've got what you have is because of your process. And 
you know, you, you and I have shared a lot of information along the way. We've, we've lent on each other for support, uh, you know, too many, too many times to, to remember. But ultimately, you've, you've got to where you have from that process. But I think part of the process, and it's a, it's a byproduct, really, you get used to rejection. So you try something, you get rejected. You try and open a door, it closes. You, you send 50 emails, you don't get any responses. And you get so used to just plowing forward with your head down in the hope of some semblance of success or an opportunity or an opening that when you actually then get it, you almost forget what you're supposed to do because you've had so many years of not actually achieving that thing. And it's a lot like sport in a way, is, is you plugging away, you're plugging away, and it's almost the summation of, I, I think that one of my favorite phrases is, is failing forwards is it's the people that can fail and just go, sod it, keep going, fail, sod it, keep going. And that's great because it can get you to where you wanted to be. But sometimes when you actually get there, you almost forgot that that was what you wanted to do. And so you're now there doing all the things. And this is where sometimes we, we reality check each other, where we've had a bad day or this year everyone's had a bad year. And I know this year we've said to each other on a number of occasions, Imagine us moaning about the problems we are now when we were 22, 23, first started out on this journey. We would have given anything to be in this position. So it's just occasionally, as you say, just stopping, taking a moment, take stock of what you have got rather than what you haven't achieved yet, what you haven't had this year. It's just saying, actually, on balance, I'm in a pretty good position. Yeah, and I think to your point, mate, I think that's a really salient way of describing it because I think I've detached myself from, I, I guess, a visceral response to things because of the number of years it took me to get where I am. Mm. And people didn't see the living in a hostel. People didn't see the mice running through the kitchen. People didn't see all of that stuff. And so the only way you can fail forward is by detaching yourself from the emotion of failure but right. by detaching, by definition, you, you detach yourself from anything that comes from it. And so when it's a, a good thing, I'm not experiencing it because I'm detached. Um, and I think what I'm, I guess, learning to do is to almost like, um, uh, I think they're called, called not switches, but basically the thing that if you've got, say, a lamppost outside, it will constantly assess the light reading and if the light reaches above a certain level the light goes on if it's below it goes off and somewhere in between it will flicker because it's hang on, i think i think it, but it's that i've now got one of those so now it's is this information good for me no detach is this information good for me yes embrace yeah. experience it um but i have to say james i spoke to lloydy recently because I've, I've known lloydy for I mean, a long time. I, I knew Lloydie back when he used to look 30. So, <laughs> but I really do envy the, posi the position that you're in where you are able to commit physically to something, whether it be run a 10K in a certain time, squat a certain amount, go to a competition and lift X total, whether it be dance on stage and do the fact that you can commit to something, I envy it so much because it's you know i live in a world where essentially i've got just enough time to not do anything but you like we said at the very start you're in a world where you 
one of your massive priorities is what you do with your body. And I, and I, I really, I love, it's lovely to know that outside of uni, that that still happens because you mentioned, you said, I'm not world-class, but the fact that I know Phil Heath is fully committed to being a bodybuilder. I know that Novak Djokovic is fully committed to being a tennis player, but it's lovely to know that in a world where when you become world champion, your life doesn't change ostensibly one iota. It's not as though you're going to go from plucked from obscurity and you're now famous and you're rich. You do it because of possibly joy of process, possibly euphoria of winning, get reach. I mean, why, Adam, just do you do it? Because I'm very jealous. I mean, you know what? I think I'm enormously privileged to have, um, so I own my own gym. So I've got like access to that kind of thing on tap. So if I want to prioritize my training, it doesn't matter if I finish late from work and I need to get it in early or after work or whatever it might be because the gym's just there. You know, it's, I'm incredibly fortunate to have an environment that's conducive towards my goals. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people beat themselves up about the fact that they don't have it like that. Um, but I think it's something which is enormously underappreciated. And I think that, to be honest, is a big part of it. Don't get me wrong, I do definitely prioritise doing what I do training-wise, but I think a big part of it is due to I'm very lucky to have the right environment, the right support around me, um, and lots of other things that have just fallen kind of nicely for me, really. And is, do you, is it the process for you? Is it, so if you hit your numbers, do you suddenly go, job, could you enjoy hitting your numbers if you haven't gone through the proper process? No, I'm like, I'm much more of a kind of guy who enjoys the training more than the, than the actual kind of goal itself. So I, I can't tell you the number of times where I've done, let's say I've, I've had a training block for a certain event or like I've trained and dieted for a photo shoot. I cannot tell you the number of times where really close to the actual event itself i think do you know what? i'm not sure i can be bothered with it it's yeah, it's, it's a bizarre thing it's a it's a weird little i don't even know what you'd call it like you know the end of the process is going to be over and you actually don't want that process to be over yeah maybe that's what it is but it is very very strange and i literally any big goal that i've had before um and got near towards the end it's always been exactly the same kind of thought has really strongly crept in um, and it's, t- it's taken a lot of effort to, to get it out and actually do the, do the task at hand. I'd be curious to know if you had that, if your aim was to beat somebody. So, because it's when you're aiming for a number, ultimately you've decided that number ahead of it. So, and the reality of whether you get it or not is a goal that you decided. So you can also then just decide in your head that oh, it was an easy goal anyway, or you can decide that it doesn't matter. Um, you can decide that um, if I start the process again, I'll be even better. So why, why go for this thing now? You can always do it over. Whereas if you're, tra- if hypothetically, I've got you in it. I think I'm the best in Britain. You think you're the best in Britain. And July of next year, we're going to find out who's the best in Britain. It's then not about your numbers. It's then about literally beating me. I'd then be curious to know how you'd find that process with the question mark of, you don't know what I'm capable of necessarily. Um, will you prevail on the night? Will you outlift what you think is possible? That I think would be quite an interesting one. Where you basically change one of the variables to a question mark. Yeah, yeah, could change again, couldn't it? Yeah. Awesome. Oh, cool. It's been great. I mean, have we done an hour and twenty? Yeah, just yeah, yeah, just over hour and fifteen or so. Yeah, Radzi, that was brilliant. Thanks so much. My absolute pleasure, lads. And James, it's also lovely to actually 
see your face and uh, have a chat with you, mate. Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, that was brilliant. Thank you. And um, if you if you do need any help with your training, mate, just give me a shout because um, you know I I can bench ninety for reps at the moment, so that's. I can I can do that. So just don't worry. Just, uh, call me and then I'll call Radzi maybe. Between the two of you, you got it covered, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those. Uh, yeah. Good. Well, lads, mate, we appreciate it. I think this hopefully won't be the last time we do this. Um, maybe we'll get you on um, when Eddie and Thor decide to step in the boxing ring. We'll, uh, yeah. We'll when when's that going on? I think it's next September. It's quite a long, quite a way away yet, isn't it? So. No rush. If, if it happens, if it happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the fact that who knows if they're going to pass the Nevada State Athletic Commission's requirements who knows yeah there's so much e- even what's the cards going to be are people really going to turn up so and also it shouldn't be in Las Vegas it should be in the UK or Iceland 100% well I've, I've thrown my hat in the ring for the commentators job anyway so I may be there but uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I won't be totally fascinated yeah, that's, that's that's got to be the main draw of it, right? Like, it, I'm I'm not a boxing fan in in the slightest, but I'm interested in this. It's why the heavyweight division is the is the best division because uh, people are fascinated with giants. Like when you look at anything WWE, The Undertaker and the Great Carly and all that lot, it's people just have a fascination with giants. Full stop. Whatever they're doing, TV, Blue Peter, giants. You know they are. They're all going. Oh, who's that giant? On <laughs> you actually look massive at the moment because uh, I think the camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You look like you're really near to the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've uh, grown or you've moved into a, a much smaller place than you made out. I don't know. It's actually a place for borrowers. It's, a, <laughs> yeah. it's like one of those optical illusions where you know the house, actually, the room at the back is just a square. <laughs> just <to> make... <laughs> <laughs> Radley, My, um, what I get, being 5'9, it's disappointing when people meet me and go, you're a lot shorter than I thought. That's because my colleague was five foot one on Blue Peter. <laughs> so I looked enormous. Great for the ego, that. Great for the ego. <laughs>